Welcome to Calvary, Wednesday night service. Good to have you with us. Uh, Pastor Skip is in Riverside, California this evening, uh, filling in for Greg Laurie. So we'll be in Luke chapter 5. Uh, before we do that, let me communicate to you several prayer requests from one of our missionaries in Mexico and Cuauhtémoc. Uh, Marianne has been a part of this fellowship for many, many years and is uh, serving there south of Juarez. And she is asking for, um, I'll give you the prayer request and we'll take a moment and pray for her. Um, continued healing of her left eye from cataract surgery. Uh, that God would heal her right eye or enable her to have another cataract surgery. Uh, pray for wisdom and knowledge in leading and teaching the children's ministry and also for direction uh, for the new youth home there in Cuauhtémoc. Let's take a moment and pray, shall we? Lord, we do come to you tonight, and except for your grace, Lord, we don't pretend to have any reason for access, to pretend that we are worthy. It's only by your favor, Lord, and your divine sovereignty that we are told to come boldly before your throne of grace. Help us to enjoy that privilege, Lord, as we do now. Uh, we lift up Mary Ann before you. Uh, we ask you, God, to touch and to heal, and we commit her health and her vision and her eyes, Lord, to you, uh, the creator of the eye, Lord, and we, we know you have her best in mind. We pray, Lord, you might provide surgery or whatever path you decide upon. But we also pray for the new work down there, the youth group, the youth uh, ministry that she is leading and teaching in. We pray, Lord, for those who um, often have circumstances far below what we are accustomed to. We pray for love and compassion, uh, for wisdom and for grace, Lord, in that work. And we thank you and we commit it to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Luke chapter 5. We'll be getting tonight in verse 4. I did want to mention, before we launch off here, coming up this Sunday, as you know, is the, the high day, uh, and we are having an event here at our new youth group uh, facility called The Hub uh, for mid-high and high school students, a Super Bowl party. Uh, we'll be having uh, a worship band, a speaker at halftime from the FCA, the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. We're inviting anybody to come out. We have uh, gifts and prizes and free pizza for all the teens, so it begins at 3.30 and I believe kickoff is like 418 or something like that. So that will be to the building to our south here, now called the Hub. So here we go. Luke chapter 5, we'll begin in verse 4. When Jesus had stopped speaking, he said to Simon, Peter, launch out into the deep and cast your nets down for a catch. But Simon answered and said to him, Master, we have toiled all night and caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net. And when they had done this, they caught a great number of fish, and their net was breaking. So they singled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats, so they began to sink. Verse 8, when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, Lord. Well, the, the title of our message tonight is Making Failure Your Friend. And I feel qualified to speak on, on this subject. Before us tonight, we have only one 
in a series of failures that we can observe in the scriptures about the life of Peter. His resume, spiritually, frankly, is not that impressive. Peter failed here. He failed at the Mount of Transfiguration to understand that great moment. He rebuked Jesus for his intent to go to Jerusalem. He failed to stay awake in the Garden of Gethsemane. He warmed himself by the enemy's fires. He lost his faith walking on the water. Uh, he failed to count the cost, and he promised to be the only one to stay with Jesus. And, of course, eventually, he finally denied Jesus just as the Lord had predicted. Now, this is only a partial list, but I think you uh, get the picture. Now, our text tonight is not an argument about fish, but the issue... I think is obedience and recognition of the lordship of Jesus and submission to his wishes. Peter failed to understand these things, and it becomes evident, I think, when we see his response there in verse 8. Look at it with me. Depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Our response to failure is the issue here. It's interesting, you know, it's an interesting object lesson to watch how people fail, how they lose. For example, in athletics, um, all kinds of awful behavior takes place. Uh, I've seen people storm off a court, take their ball literally and go home, uh, get into fist fights, follow the ref into the parking lot and threaten him. And this is a church league basketball team I'm talking about. <laughs> you, you ought to hear about the unspiritual ones. We, we, spend, we spend a lot of time teaching kids how to be winners, coaching them in athletics to get peak performance. But really, from a statistical standpoint, they are more likely to lose than they are to win. So maybe we ought to be teaching them how to lose gracefully. Teach them how to fail, how, as one author put it, to, to crash but not burn. Um, other people have a different response to failing to losing. Some have what I call the, the grandma syndrome. You'll beat them, and they'll walk off the court and go, they'll mutter, oh, my grandmother could have beat me today. Well, what are they really saying? It's really not their, their opponent. It's a matter of fact that it's their poor performance, you see. It's really kind of a, a rude comment. Others have the I was robbed complex. They're always blaming the refs, the conditions, or a, a bad call. Something's always outside causing them to lose or to fail. Others have the pits of depression, kind of the bad news bears approach. They allow failure to get to them. They become failures. They fail to distinguish between failing and being a failure. It's a thin line, but it's all the difference in the world. Fortunately, not everyone responds like this to failure. There are some legendary successes who were initially pretty poor failures. You, you've probably heard Michael Jordan was cut from his 10th grade basketball team. Now, you got to wonder what that coach would think. <laughs> I mean, later, watching the NBA Finals, what was I doing? Albert Einstein was expelled from grade school for a low intellect. Vincent van Gogh sold one painting in his lifetime, but he kept on working and became productive, obviously. So our theme tonight is making failure 
your friend. Um, I was reading a story of Alexander Dumas. He was the French author who wrote the, the Three Musketeers. And he got into an argument with a friend one day, and they, uh, the typical way to resolve it in those days, uh, based on the offense, was dueling. And they were, they were both skilled marksmen. And they thought, well, this is foolish because we'll probably just kill each other. So they decided to draw straws, and the winner would kill himself. <laughs> so, so sure enough, Alexander gets the short straw, and being a gentleman and being noble, gets his pistol and goes off into the library, closes the door. A few moments later, they hear a shot. Then he comes out. He says, amazing, I missed. <laughs> so there is a kind of failure where you can still be a winner. But let me warn you, there are three kinds of failures that are not our friends. And they are to be considered, in fact, our enemies. First of all, I think obviously the ultimate failure for any human being is to fail in the purpose of knowing God. Now we have to pause and consider what the impact of that would be. Imagine going through your whole life, going through all the motions of school and education and career and family and trials and struggling to be a good citizen, trying to be a good family member, and then you're body betrays you, your heart stops, and you meet the Lord face to face. And none of it matters. The only question, the only thing that will be asked of a person in that day is, what did you do with Jesus? And if you fail with a capital F to answer that question by saying, I accepted his payment on the cross for my sins, you will be not just a failure, but an eternal failure. There's no second chance for that. There's no way out. It, it boggles our mind, does it not? To, to grope and grapple with eternity. And the thought of being in a place separated from all that is light and good and decent, and only to think about the opportunities you had to know life. Now, that is failure. That is a failure to be avoided at all costs. And the fact is... The opportunity has been given to us to avoid just that failure because there is no excuse. Paul said, you are without excuse, O oh man. God has made it evident to us what our condition is and what his only condition for salvation is. That's the man Christ Jesus dead upon the cross. Well, The second kind of failure we are to avoid is a, a willful, consistent, disobedient failure that defies God that insists upon its own lifestyle that will inevitably lead to captivity. As we study the Old Testament, we find that God took out of Genesis and the story of Noah a people, a strange people, a stiff-necked people, a Jewish people, nothing special in and of themselves. But he sought a people to put upon a platform that all the world might gaze at them and wonder about their relationship with this one God. Because the problem coming out of Babylon and coming out of the post-flood era was not that man wasn't interested in God. They had gods everywhere. The problem was they didn't focus on the one true God. They were guilty of idolatry. And so God elevated this people 
that he might make the world jealous. They might say, what is it with those Jews? What is different about them? What was to be different about them and distinct was their relationship with the one true living God. But as we read in 1 Kings and Chronicles, the vicious death spiral that the people of Israel insisted upon over the course of many kings and many prophets and many years, God said, if you do not honor me as the one true God, if you absorb the practices of the surrounding pagan nations, if you turn my purposes upside down and are not on a platform of purity, but now are imbibing all this awful pollution of the surrounding nations, I will inevitably lead you to captivity. Now, that principle can be true in the Christian life as well. It does not happen overnight. Israel's great decline did not happen in a moment. It did not happen without many, many, many warnings on God's behalf. He sent prophets. He sent priests. He sent some good kings warning the people, if you don't turn, you will go into captivity. I believe that can happen to a Christian. That if we reject the warnings, if we insist on going through the succeeding circles of insulation God puts between us and judgment, we'll find that captivity, a spiritual captivity. We'll surrender. We'll forfeit the great privileges. We'll lose the intimacy with our Lord. We'll lose the opportunity to be used by him. This, I think, was Paul's greatest fear, and it ought to be ours that he would be shelved, that having preached to others, he himself would not be usable. That's a failure that should sober us. That's a failure that cannot, will not, should not be our friend. And then there's a, there's a failure that becomes an acceptable lifestyle to you. And that, too, will be an obstacle, a hindrance. Because, again, we have to draw that sharp distinction between accepting failure and learning from it and expecting failure and becoming comfortable with it. In the book, Failing Forward, John Maxwell, who speaks to tens of thousands of groups, men and people all over the world, writes this. The wrong response to failure results in more people who inflict misery upon themselves on a consistent basis than almost any other spiritual malady. We, we shoot ourselves in the foot by becoming accustomed to failure. We see in verse 8 that Peter has one of these wrong responses to failure. He allowed, and watch this carefully, he allowed the guilt of his failure to recognize and obey Jesus to drive him from the presence of Christ. Do you see that there? Now, perhaps you've attempted church work to start a, a Bible study, uh, to share your faith even in, in lifestyle evangelism, and yet you failed. It hasn't worked out. People didn't come. There was division. Who knows? Something intervened. And so you've allowed that failure to disengage you from being motivated from being excited, you've lost your edge because that failure has dulled your sense of excitement. And maybe even layer upon layer of guilt 
has been added when you hear proper teachings about how Christians ought to be doing this and could be doing that and should be doing this. And you've allowed your life maybe even to drift. It can happen easily. And you find yourself, like Peter, thinking, I'm not worthy. I failed. Depart from me, Lord. But instead of saying as Peter, Oh, Lord, how can you look at me? That's not the issue. Jesus says, No, you look at me. That's the solution. Not that he's to look at us and see all the ugly insides of our heart, but that we are to look at him and to be changed from glory to glory. You can be paralyzed by the fear of failure when we assume that the past will be repeated in the future. That is not automatically so. You may even have a, a vague feeling that you're just unlucky, that you're doomed to forever buy high and sell low, thinking somebody has to do it to help the economy. <laughs> well, there's a, there's a thin line between realism, which is practical and mature and helpful, and cynicism, which is deadening. It makes you bitter. It cuts into your faith. It's easy to have that kind of discouragement set in. Your attitude begins to sour. You can always find the, the dark cloud and ignore the silver lining. If you wander around any bookstore here in town, You'll find shelf after shelf of self-help and motivation, all kinds of bizarre titles. And people about success and motivation and seven habits of effective people and all the rest. A lot of gibberish and cliches, but they are on to something when they say attitude is everything. I'd put a little enjoinder in there. Attitude is almost everything. But it's so important. Because your attitude is going to dictate your thought life. It will dictate the words that come out of your mouth. It will frame your priorities. It will help you to be either driven and motivated by true spiritual principles or hindered and held back by the past. Um, you can become a hostage to your past, numb to the possibility of exciting changes and dynamic growth. Let me give you a real quick three-phrase solution to that. Get up, get over it, and get going. But you say, no, I've, I've had great problems. I've had a whole series of bad things happen to me. Let me tell you a story I came across about a, a parakeet named Chippy. It's no relation. seems one day Chippy's owner was vacuuming his cage. Phone rang and he distracted and there goes Chippy right through the tube, thunk, into the vacuum tank. Well, the owner freaked out, opened it up and Chippy was battered but still breathing, covered in soot and ashes and hair and whatnot. So he grabs him by the, the wing, flings that bird into the bathtub and turns on the cold, icy cold water. Well, that was a shock to Chippy's system. And he got the, the dirt off him, but he's like paralyzed. So grabs the poor bird, throws him on the counter, gets out the hair dryer with a blast of 
blast of hot air, feathers are all fluffered up and whatnot. Chippy is dazed and confused. And as Chuck Swindoll commented about this story, Chippy doesn't sing much anymore. <laughs> well, are you singing much anymore? Maybe you've had a long series of nasty incidents in your life. <laughs> Listen to this story of somebody to put it in perspective. His name is Larry Hanratty. He lived in New York. He was nearly electrocuted one day in a construction accident, spent several weeks in a coma. It's a true story. While fighting for disability, one lawyer was disbarred. Two of his lawyers died. His wife ran off with her lawyer. Larry has heart disease, liver disease. Later, he had a car accident. When the police left, he was robbed. His insurance wants to cut off his benefits. His landlord to terminate his lease. Larry has agoraphobia. It's the fear of open spaces. He seldom leaves his room. But he says, oh, there's always hope. Now, there's a fellow who's had a string of bad luck. There's always hope. How can we turn the corner here to understand how failure can be a partner? It is inevitable. We will suffer failures. Can we put it to work for us somehow? Well, you know, Peter did. Now look again quickly first at, at verse 8. His initial response to failure, Oh, Lord, depart from me. I'm not worthy. Don't look upon me. And let me also point out as a sidebar that in verse 10, Jesus is always in the business of res restoration, always about redemption. Well, someday, Peter, you will fish for men. Don't be afraid. Always turning it around, always lifting up, never putting down. Now, let me ask you to move over to the Gospel of John, just a few pages past, chapter 21, verse 7. That's a companion story. It kind of forms bookends in the life of Peter there in the Sea of Galilee. To compare and contrast his reaction to failure. Because here in chapter 21 of the Gospel of John, verse 7, John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, recognizes the Lord on the shore. This is post-resurrection. And as soon as Peter, who's in the boat, who had been fishing all night, heard him say, It is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and he jumped into the water. Now compare that to his other reaction, of saying, Oh, Lord, depart from me. Now he couldn't wait to get close to the Lord. And what events had intervened in Peter's life most recently? He had failed miserably, denied the Lord three times. And yet, he had learned something in the intruding years from walking with Christ about the grace of Jesus. And now, instead of getting as far away as he could from Christ, he couldn't get close enough. You see, initially, he was being driven from the one place where he could find help, at the feet of Jesus. And now, he couldn't get there quick enough. What happened? Great failure, he had learned his lesson. Well, he's driven to Jesus. He finds the relief. We are reminded that Jesus said, He who has been forgiven much loves much. Now, a surface reading of that might mean, well, then, if you've been a great sinner, you have more capacity for love. But 
that flies in the face of biblical teaching. Um, that would mean that a person who was raised in a Christian home and never had a time of great rebellion and had never really strayed from the path would be handicapped in his fellowship in loving God. Well, that can't make sense. I think that would cause us to suffer from a, a false spiritual economy. Now, let me suggest an alternate application. Let me infer and imply that Jesus would have said, he who is aware that he had been forgiven much will love much. Now, that falls more in line with our understanding of our relationship with Jesus. Because to say that a person who, let's say, is in the penitentiary, who's broken civil law, created a felony, is a worse sinner than a person who's never been in the justice system. I think that is a false economy, you see. And I think that we have to realize that in, in God's view, we're, we've all committed high spiritual crimes. We're all felons in God's kingdom. And the issue is not, have we been forgiven much? That's a given. The thing is, are you aware of it? Because your awareness will give you that capacity, that recognition of the great gift God has given you, and that will motivate you, inspire you to love much. That's what happened to Peter. That's why he couldn't wait for that boat to get to shore. He went off, took off his robe, doggy paddled all the way to shore. Couldn't wait to see Jesus. Well, I would like to wonder and suggest what had changed in Peter's life. That he had become aware of the great work of grace that God had done, was doing, and would accomplish. Processed properly, failure can serve you because failure will bring humility. And God majors in bringing humility to his children's lives. When we become realistic and accept the fact we're not super sheep, we're not going to be flawless or faultless or perfect. Well, I mean, what if we could live a life without failure, a life of sinless perfection? What would happen? What if that were feasible? You know, there's a legend about a man like that. It's called King Midas. His one great wish was to have a golden touch. Anything he touched would turn to gold. It would be absolute perfection. And it worked fine. He became very wealthy until he became hungry. And then he, everything he touched and reached for and sought to eat turned to gold as well. And that gift became a curse. Now, failure can be a partner in our life. Everyone has had great trauma. If we went around here and asked, we could all recite different high problems and deep hurts we've had, our hearts broken. That's not the issue. That is the human condition to one degree or another. But suffering can give us empathy for others. See, there's a great difference between feeling empathetic objectively for somebody. If someone has a terminal disease or an accident or a birth defect, and you see it from the outside, you can feel sorry for them. You can have empathy for them. But once you've gone through that hospital experience with a loved one, and you've sat there and done the vigil by the bedside, and saw someone you deeply cared for go through great suffering, then you feel sympathy 
for people in a similar condition. And until you have that kind of an experience, it's difficult really to know what they're going through. I think that illuminates what a great Messiah we have, who was touched with all our infirmities, tempted in all points just as we are, yet without sin. He sits not in some high throne and casts down tablets of stone to us. He came down and experienced. He knows what you're going through. He understands the temptations, and he promises the power to overcome them. Well, that gives us some insight into what a great Lord we have. And that is the theme of Peter's restoration, not looking on the inside, but looking on the outside. We, we said, get up, get over it. We also might also say, get over yourself, because everybody else has. They aren't focused on you. We're so self-absorbed, we think they are. Get up, get over it, get outside yourself, and get going. Psychologist Carl Menninger was asked what a person who felt a nervous breakdown coming on should do. And his listener expected him to say, well, see a psychiatrist, go into therapy, get counseling. He said, no. Tell that person to lock their home, go across the tracks to the inner city, find a needy person, and help them. Surprising. In fact, manager said, generous people are seldom mentally ill people. Interesting. Not absorbed with the self-delusion of the world revolving around them. Let's watch now as... Jesus restores Peter and prepares him for service. Verse 15, John 21. When they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus replied, feed my lambs. Now, in this well-known conversation, we recognize Jesus taking the eyes of Peter off himself to the only healthy place they could be, onto Christ and onto his people. Do you love me? He doesn't say, oh, get it together on the inside, Peter. No, feed my sheep. Do you love me? Oh, Peter, some things you have to change. No, look outside yourself to those who are truly needy. Feed my sheep. Do you love me, Peter? Forget about yourself and feed my lambs. This might surprise you, but I think there's kind of an inverted sort of pride to those who are afraid to try because they're afraid to fail. Because they're afraid to be noticed. They're so focused upon themselves, they're afraid to fail. And, you see, if you are self-absorbed, you'll become either vain or bitter because the focus, you think, is on your performance. No, put others first in your thinking. Find out what their true needs are. Meet that need with generosity and excellence. Don't let past failures keep you from productive service in the future. As Christians, we're called conservative. 
Theologically, that's good. Economically, socially, politically, it also is a, a tag we carry. But I think caution and conservatism can be the wrong way to go sometimes. There's a place for being, I'll submit to you, a bit reckless in your faith. Now, we find in Peter's life a lot of material for talking about failure. But let's remember, he was the only one who got out of the boat. No one else did. And whatever we might say, Peter walked on water. Peter walked on water. That's a fact. Now, eventually, his faith failed. This we know. There's a lesson there. But the truth is, Peter got out of the boat, a spirit of adventure, and walked on water. Where is um, our sense of adventure? Where is our spirit of excitement? What about the story of Jonathan and his armor-bearer? Two guys up against the Philistines, badly outnumbered, no resources, no backups, no plan. Now, conservatism, caution would say, run back to camp. Don't engage those Philistines. But Jonathan said, you know what? Let's just see what the Lord might do. And they engaged, and they overwhelmed, and they took over the Philistine camp that day. They sent the whole army to flight. Two guys, maybe not the wisest move, but an adventuresome one that God honored. You see, when the senior pastor here first walked into this building many years ago, it was a tennis court, a soccer field, a party place. And there were those, even in leadership, who said, oh, never need a place this big. Run out half of it. You'll never, don't rent this place. It's, it's too large. Well, you know, I was here third service on Sunday and uh, standing room only. And, in fact, we're knocking that wall out soon and moving out into the parking lot to, to fit a, a large number of people here in the sanctuary. It's the spirit of adventure. Let's see what God will do and look what he has done. And what if he closes the door? Then do you put your tail between your legs and go back home to mom? Or do you go knock on a different door? Get up, get over it, get going. Don't worry about it. Don't live in the past. Do you know that celebrity baseball players who are paid, in fact, one of them now is paid something like an outrageous sum of a quarter of a billion dollars to play baseball. And he fails more often than he succeeds at the plate. In fact, if you only fail six out of ten times, you're in the Hall of Fame in baseball. If you only fail. Three out of ten, you're an all-star. Two and a half out of ten, you're only a millionaire. We need that kind of approach. If everything you do, you approach with absolute caution. There's a place for that, I grant you. But it will restrict us from evangelizing, taking the gospel to dangerous places. You won't be able to do much, because the alternative to being adventuresome is kind of being stuck. Don't drive your car. 20% of all fatal accidents happen in vehicles. Now, you can't walk in the street. 15% of all accidents happen there. can't really go home either because 17% of all injuries take place in the home. I don't know. I don't know what you're going to do. Well, what changed about Peter was that he had changed. That's the heart of repentance. Repentance, at its essence, is changing your mind, your heart. Saying to God, you know what? You were right. And then you 
correspondingly change your behavior to match your change of mind. Until and unless you've done that, you have not repented. You can think different thoughts, but until your actions and your lifestyle are in harmony with your belief structure, you haven't repented. You've had a shallow, superficial change of mind about God, but you haven't really changed your heart because a changed heart will always mean a changed life. That's inevitable. Because your heart is the seat of your emotions, your mind, your will, your personality. What you live out every day is simply the product, a function of what's in your heart. Hang around people, listen to their words for a while, and they will absolutely tell you the condition of their heart. Because it is merely an echo of what's going on on the inside. And if you've not repented, if you've not changed, if you're hanging on to habits and lifestyles, not intermittently, but consistently, if you've adopted a lifestyle that is contrary to God's express written will, that's not repentance. Now, in the big picture, that's big trouble. Because it can mean that eternal failure. If you've fooled yourself, if you're in church, if your Bible's open for any other reason, for any other purpose than to know and follow God, if you come because a girlfriend or a husband or a family member forces you or encourages you, and that's the only reason you're coming to please them, you are in danger of never really having it be absorbed into your life. And that can transform you into what we call a fake, artificial, a pretend Christian. And that's very dangerous. Now, for the Christian who also continues to drift and allows his life to move out into areas it should not, it can be utterly dangerous, totally destructive to your testimony and to your usability in the kingdom. What changed about Peter was that he changed. Unwillingness to change is a major roadblock for many people. I came across some strategies for dealing with a dead horse. And here are a couple of them. If you have a dead horse, buy a stronger whip. If you have a dead horse, change riders. If you have a dead horse, appoint a committee to study the horse. Then send a memo saying the horse isn't dead. Harness several dead horses together for more speed. Hire a consultant to find out the real problem. And finally, if you have a dead horse, promote him to management. <laughs> None of it accepts reality. All of it takes some man-made device to escape the obvious. We need change in our life. We need a continued adoption of God's principles as we reject and jettison our thought philosophy. You see, that's the issue of repentance. It's not a one-time event. You come forward at the altar. We see thousands come here each year and repent and respond to the gospel, and that's good. Some for survival of eternal life, some for changing their life and recommitting and reviving their life. But the issue is, if their heart is not set upon repentance, if looking for a quick fix, an overnight cure, instantaneous change in their life, doesn't work that way. Let's face it. We didn't get this way overnight, did we? 
The Bible calls it practicing sin. Now in sports, you have practice every day after school. That's what we did for sin. We practiced. We maintained our ability to sin. We expanded it, our capacity to sin. And so that sin doesn't go away easily or quickly often. We need to be in the process of repenting, of changing, of getting out of the habit of failing, of not expecting failure. Now, God will not put a layer of guilt upon your life for failing. Don't let it drive you from Him. What is your credit for failure with God? If you're an honest, sincere, genuine, authentic child of God and seeking to walk after Him, it's unlimited. But Jesus said, not 70 times 7, but beyond that, His grace is so magnificent, so magnanimous, that He's willing to forgive again and again. The problem would be that if you continue in that way, you probably wouldn't be interested in forgiveness. He'll keep forgiving long after we ask. Well, change can be painful, but it can also be crucial if we had to break out of old molds, might call them ruts, how do we treat others when they fail? Do you stigmatize people? What's one of the worst things you can call someone in this culture? A loser. A loser. <laughs> do you brand people that way? Do you do to them what you wouldn't want done to yourself? how quickly we want forgiveness, how slow sometimes we are to give it out. I have here a, a post-it note. Uh, my office revolves around these things. I grind to a halt when I don't have them. And um, do you know this is a failure? That the engineers at 3M up in Minneapolis were trying to find a good adhesive, and this adhesive was a failure. And they started putting it on notes in, in our office there up at their um, headquarters. It became very popular. Now it's a multi-million dollar seller. It's a failure. So you don't know the things you might be trying. You know, Thomas Edison tried thousands and thousands of combinations to discover the light bulb. Somebody said, aren't you discouraged? He goes, no, I've discovered thousands of ways not to build a light bulb. <laughs> don't consider past failures final. Get up, get over it, and get going. Get motivated. The time is short. Redeem it because the days are evil. Lord's coming is near. And if it's not, your going is. And so realize we need to be about the Father's business. It's not all about you. It's not all about us. It's about Him. It's about them. Get your eyes off yourself. Get interested and motivated in the lives of other people. There's a great need for hospitality in this church. A great need is to show loving kindness, not just come and sit in the same seat and go through the motions and make the donuts and go home. You've got, you can have the opportunity to get outside your shell and show some love, show some kindness. It's your first time here. It's an opportunity to give, to give yourself away. As I said, everyone else already has. They say that, you know, 20 minutes before your funeral, the biggest problem your friends will have is where to park at the church. During the funeral, they'll be deeply grieved about you being gone. Twenty minutes after the funeral, their biggest problem will be where to find the potato salad at the reception.
and realize your time on earth is short. You need to get out of yourself. The world is waiting. The world is waiting to hear the truth. Well, let's think as we close here tonight of some of the areas we have all failed in. That would be a good joint exercise. We failed in spiritual service. We've broken commitments. We failed in relationships. We failed in financial matters. We failed in meeting economic goals. We, fell, we failed in being the people our parents told us we should be. We've been branded by failure from day one. You know what? It's time to get over it. It's time to realize that God is all about new life, all about a new spirit, and not about rearview mirrors. Learn from the past, yes, but get past it. And recognize it's a new day. It's a new dawn. And the what will be withheld from those that love him? Nothing. He's, he's interested in equipping and empowering and making you more than a victor. But you don't have to be dragged back by destructive habits that have become very corrosive inside your life. Are we doomed to repeat the past? The answer, happily, is no. Only if you insist on it. God has a new life for us, a new field for you to enjoy. He has a place for you to go and to prosper and to be productive and to be fruitful. God desires of your life fruit. First, he wants to walk with you in fellowship, to, to walk with you in the garden in the cool of the day, just to enjoy the simple intimacy of knowing him. Our culture puts a great emphasis, a great price tag upon being popular, about being with friends. It almost penalizes us for solitude. You see a person eating dinner or lunch alone, oh, poor person, must have no friends, eating alone. Well, there's nothing wrong with solitude, with drawing near to God. The Bible has promised if we draw near to him, he will draw near to us. He's not playing hide-and-seek with you. And so he wants your fellowship to be sweet. That will be the arsenal that will give you the weapons to fight the warfare you've been losing. That's where you'll find the strength, the direction, the spiritual vitality that will be demanded of you in the Christian walk. Because this is not a fun zone. It's a, a war zone. And there is an enemy of your souls and he wants to dredge up the failures in your life and keep them ever before your eyes and say, this is you. This is the way you've always been. It's the way you'll always be. But God says, no, I came that you can change. You can please me. You can live in a way that will glorify me in ways you can't even imagine. No more a victim, but truly now a victor. I suspect there are those here tonight who have felt the sting a failure, the consistent drumming on their life of not being good enough, not looking right, not being right, not acting right. And you've heard it from quarters that ought to be your encouragers, and you've heard discouragement. It's brought depression. It's caused you to be just numb to the sweetness of God's Spirit. Well, that can change tonight. You can have new, fresh vitality in your Christian life. 
There are things I believe God seeks to do in your life that you can't even imagine. Ephesians says he wants to do things exceedingly and abundantly beyond that which you can ask or think. Allow that promise to be something to meditate upon in the days to come. Let's pray. Lord, tonight as we come to the end of this study, we come to the beginning of a new phase of our lives. And Lord, you are the God of newness, new hearts, of a new creation, of new life indeed. And we are thankful for that, God. Like Peter, we sometimes are driven from your presence. We ought to be driven into it by our failings. And we don't pretend, Lord, that we have not sinned, that we are worthy, that we have any right save your grace. I pray for hearts that are heavy tonight. pray for lives that are burdened. I pray for people, Lord, who have just been weighed down by their performance. Help them to look up at your performance on the cross. How you made a way when there was no way. How you opened a door that was closed. How you gave us hope, God, where we only had darkness. We are so grateful. I pray now as we we pause and take this time together that hearts will be healed, lives mended, hopes given, Lord. Let your spirit just move freely in our midst, not just to rush from this place, God, but to pause and consider what a great God we serve. Lord, I pray that burdens would be lifted right now, weights that have been carried maybe for a lifetime would be set free, God. You are a a God of liberty, freedom, and truth. And you've promised that the truth will set us free. And the truth is that we have failed, but you have forgiven. And Lord, we give you all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.